You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm shaking my booty. I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. I'm Mark. Uh, I'm Simon. Oh my god. Well, he's not here, is he? So we can do what we like now with his voice. Yeah. He's here in spirit. <laughs> he's actually, yeah, he's hearing more than spirit. He's listening in. <laughs> I know. But he's not taking part because he's got no microphone in that box. <sighs> what kind of podcaster is he, eh? Well, and he's got a very <laughs> special box. He's in a box with Neil Gaiman. What? He's, oh, what robbed, the... he's robbed Neil Gaiman from wherever it is that Neil Gaiman lives, and he's gone <laughs> up in the box with him. Yeah, from Neverwhere. What, one of those little tiny boxes that Matt Smith was so sad about? No, the kind of box that you usually spend some time with Stephen Moffat oh, in. Oh, that box is horrible. It's got moss in it and everything. Well, you, that one has. I expect Simon's got a nicer box. At least that's what Stephen tells me it is. <laughs> moss. Right, I'm going to read out. I'm going to read out an email to kick off this episode. And if anybody wasn't listening last week and doesn't know what the subject of this week's episode is, uh, then they should gather it from this email. Mm-hmm. And this is an example of true interactivity because Sucky Kark got in touch Hello. with me and Mark on Twitter just a couple of hours ago. And said, when are you next recording a podcast? I'd like to write you an email. And Mark <laughs> said, well, in about two hours' time. And Sucky said, what's the subject? And Mark told him. And then, you know, a little while after that, the email came through. And here it is. Whoa. I know, it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Jared's excited. Well, he's, he's only he's... just discovered email. It's incredible. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks, guys. Right, Sucky says... And the clues in the very first question. How many actual alien planets did we see? The very first one being Scaro, of course, but after that, how many did you actually see? Not much, I can tell you. Most of what was seen on screen was corridors or control rooms or caves. He's looked at the first 13 or 14 years of stories where an alien planet was visited by the TARDIS crew, and bar the odd occasion, most of it took place indoors. You might find the odd footage of a man on a hill for instance, in The Savages, or of a Dalek playing with his bucket in the sand, like in The Chase. Of course, as you will know, it would have been very difficult for the production crew to go all out and try and create an alien planet on the meagre budgets that they were given by the BBC. So they made do with just indoor settings, with the odd lava lamp in the corner would mean that it was an alien environment. (laughs) The very first alien planet, Scaro, was brought to the screen by loads of corridors and a quest through caves. Hmm... 
Now, he goes on to say, when the production crew did try to make an alien planet, the web planet, and he's not counting the keys of Marinus or the sensorites, as both were set indoors for the most part, they did it with a lot of risk. Looking at the web planet in 2013, uh, with 2013 goggles on, you can see it as very, very basic visuals, and you can laugh at it. But hey, looking... careful. Well... That's Lee's favourite story of all time. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> he's got the costume and everything. You Which should one? Try, and fa- try and fast forward, it's brilliant. I try, yeah, but don't do that thing where you press pause and then just press fast forward on the pause so it goes really slowly. Don't do that. Oh my god. <laughs> That'd be 12 hours of Web Planet. <sighs> right, Sookie says, but looking at it with 1965 spectacles on is a visual feast. You have to admire the production crew for trying to bring an alien planet to life. Nothing like this was being shown on British television, and for many years this story was fondly remembered by fans as a classic, helped mm. by the Target novel, which gave more descriptions to the visuals. It was mm. only years late. Sorry, go on. No, I'm just agreeing with you, yeah. Okay, it was only years later when the story was released on video that many people re-evaluated their opinion based on the effects. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, on. he said um, that that was the first alien planet that we see, but it isn't, is it? Don't we see Scaro's petrified forest? Yeah, I Doesn't think that... he'd forgotten that, judging by what he said earlier in the email. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, the th- the point he's trying to make is that the web planet is the first time you spend an an entire story, pretty much, on Mm. the surface of the planet rather than indoors. But actually it is indoors because it's just a studio, isn't it, really? Well, technically, yes, but the indoors is representing an outdoors. (laughs) I've spoiled the magic, haven't I? Um, Yeah, yeah, he is right, though. I mean, Sookie's hit the nail on the head. I mean, a lot of the corridor scenes throughout Doctor Who are on alien planets and... You know, that's where you get all the running through the corridor stuff from, don't you? Because they just couldn't afford the budget to go outside and have a big lush jungle every week or whatever. So, yeah, I have to say, right. I'm sorry to jump yep. in on you there. I have to say, I'm quite surprised that Sucky never mentioned the Q word. <clears throat> What's that? Quarries. Oh, he didn't. Well, do he? he's not got there yet. That's the point. No. That's a long way off yet, mate. <laughs> yeah, he's still in William Hartnell. I thought he was done. What do you mean? Do you mean Sucky's email? Yeah. No, you two have interrupted me halfway through oh. it. Oh, As sorry. Per. Oh, sorry, Sucky. Off you go. Shall I carry on? Yeah. Please do. The next few stories that had alien planets and then were not shown on screen in all their glory except one, and that didn't even have the Doctor in it, Mission to the Unknown, or Dalek Cutaway or whatever it's called by fandom these days. Mm. Kemble, a planet to be avoided at all costs, not only did it have bloody thirsty... No, bloody thirsty. (laughs) (laughs) Not only did it have bloodthirsty plants and rogue delegates who want to take over the galaxy, but it also had a garrison of Daleks on the planet. Kemble was basically a jungle set with good lighting, something that would not be used in Doctor Who again until the planet of evil. But I'm mm. sure JR would say that the jungle sets on his favourite Dalek story were just as good, <laughs> Planet of the Daleks, Spiridon. Mm. Though I do have a soft spot for that too. But what a t- Sorry, I'm just say it is a terrible name for planet, Kemble. Go on. Well, it... Uh, all Kemble reminds me of is the word handball, and handball reminds me of play school. Do you remember <laughs> play school? But yes. Kemble's just such a kind of... It's like a chumbly word, isn't it? It's, it's like, oh, what a lovely... Blah, blah, blah. What a bubbly little tiny lovely planet this is. Kemble. I don't know. Uh, that was a Terry Nation thing, wasn't it? Didn't he think of that name? Do you want to know what the best thing about recording like this is? 
you can turn me off. I can't hear you, <laughs> basically. It's brilliant. You can't hear me. Oh. Sookie carries on and says, but how do you describe an alien planet by classic era standards? You're talking by costumes and mannerisms and speech patterns that are not quite human, uh, not much in the way of visual effects. Or if you had actual aliens as part of the story, a lot of the alien planets were inhabited by humans, so they had human ideals, and so they were always within human and not alien boundaries. Mm. Throw in an alien, and you have conflict, and a point where the audience can latch onto a story. Some of these aliens were very good, and you could see where the production crew would be trying to convey an alien environment. He says the Dominators, the Crotons, Colony in Space, and the Peladon stories were all told on alien planets, but with a human point of view. And aliens as the bad guys. Mm. He, uh, he's coming to the end now. He says, I'm going to have to sign off soon as I've just realised it's ticking up to my deadline. But I just want to say that New Who has not really gone for a full out alien planet yet. It's all been vaguely Earth-like planets, barring the odd colour in the sky or the extra sun orbiting the planet. Possibly mm. due to the production crew not having enough money to do them justice. But wouldn't it be wonderful if they just tried to do what their 1960s counterparts did with the web planet? I'd watch it with a very happy grin on my face, my face, my face, and then maybe, nearly 50 years later, I'll criticise it for the alien planet not being proper 3D or interactive. And that's Sucky signing off. Yeah. He's a legend, isn't he? He is a legend. Do you know what? Bring back, bring back Vortis and Animus. Bring them all back. I think it'd be great. Right. That's going to be the 50th episode. <laughs> oh, you, uh, you know, we've um, got an alien planet coming up in episode two. Have we? Of the next run of episodes, an alien planet in episode two. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, I can't remember what it's called, but I was writing about it the other day. And we've been promised by Stephen Moffat and everybody a spectacular episode. So I wonder if, given that they obviously knew when they were filming these episodes that these were going to be the ones that went out in 2013 I would just wonder if they've decided to actually do an alien planet and you know no holds barred no expenses spared actually go for it oh I hope so I've been waiting a long time right well this is our alien planets episode then yay (laughs) and uh, well we've all been here before haven't we Yes, it's a real shame. That was a corking episode. (laughs) Uh, Well, explain to the listener what happened. Uh, We did an episode and it fucked up, basically. Um, Explain without swearing, Lee. Oh, sorry, that was a beep, wasn't it? I do apologise. Yes, no, we we did record it all and it didn't record properly. um, And we lost the entire episode. And it's a real shame because we did such a marvellous job on it. um, And we were all quite proud of it and chuffed and... The tech let us down, but never mind. That's not tech as in person, that's the actual technology let us down, so never mind. So now we've got to go through all the topics of conversation <laughs> we went through back then, again, and try mm. and make it sound like we're not just repeating things we said earlier. Well, well mine and Lee's memory are both really bad, so it shouldn't be a problem. No, I can't remember anything I said <laughs> at all. <laughs> okay then, the, well the first thing, well, I kind of went through chronologically. Yeah. And I kind of steered the episode into the area of looking at how different eras, uh, with different, uh, you know, the thing about different eras is not necessarily the people involved when you're talking about something like this, but it's the time, the sophistication 
Mm. As Doctor Who goes on, it gets more sophisticated in the things it presents to an audience. So uh, the first point I made was right back at the very start. You kind of start off with, well, the Dalek planet. It's a scary planet, so they call it Scaro or Scaro. Mm. And then the next thing is you've got Marinus, which is a planet that's covered in water. And then in the chase, you've got Iridius, which is a planet which is a desert, mm. and so on and so forth. But back then, and there's a, a little bit of a tail off of this into the 1970s as well, but back in the 1960s, there was quite a lot of, you know, naming the planet after its most prominent feature. Do you know, one thing I've often wondered, when Terry Nation wrote The Daleks, and he wrote the word Scaro, did he actually mean for it to be pronounced Scaro? And when they got it into the studio, of course, he wasn't there because he'd handed his script in and gone. I wonder if they just mispronounced it and actually it should have been pronounced Scaro. What do you think? Oh, we'll never know, will we? It's going back to the uh, the Target novelizations again, isn't it? And our misunderstandings of yeah. what we think the word means or how but it sounds. I just... I just wonder if the production team of the time, the director probably, or the producer, whoever, you know, looked at it and said, oh, planet's called Scaro. And so when they're in the rehearsal room, everybody is rehearsing and they're all pronouncing it Scaro. I just wonder if Terry Nation had meant for it to be pronounced Scaro. After all, this is the guy who did Marinus and Iridius and Mechanus, the planet of the, you know, robots. Mechanoids? Yeah, quite. Well, what do you think? Do you think it's a possibility? Anybody? Oh, hello. Have we lost Is Lee? He gone. I think he's gone. Oh, we've lost Lee. <laughs> I'll. Well, never mind. Not for the first time. <laughs> um, well, Lee's a funny bugger anyway. <laughs> um. Oh, uh, we looked at uh, the kind of things that they were doing with the alien planets, and mm. back in the 1960s, that was kind of. You know, that was kind of the the way they treated alien planets there were a few exceptions and obviously the keys of marinus is a big exception but for the large part an alien planet would have a single feature or aspect often th- that it would be named after and that's all we really got of it well i think aside from possibly keys of marinus i think the planets back then had a very sort of narrow view to them whereas you you kind of came into the story and to all intents and purposes you're seeing this tiny little percentage of the planet and that seems to represent the whole planet they don't really tend to think much further than that um keys and marins does stand out in the early seasons because you have got these various different sort of zones if you like so you've got one that's full of we've, snow and ice and, and what have you. have got a planet with countries to all yeah, intents exactly. and purposes. Nobody else had, or continents even, nobody else yeah. had even tried to do that. I mean, I know that was pretty early, so most of the other stories came afterwards. But, mm-hmm. but before, you know, apart from Keys of Marinus, I don't know when the next time that anybody even addressed that there might be planets with different continents and different weather zones and different peoples. I suppose you've got a little bit of that in the Daleks' master plan, haven't you? Well, you've got different planets in the Daleks' master yeah. plan. So, You know, Daleks' master plan is, to all intents and purposes, a remake of The Chase, which was, to all intents and purposes, a remake of The Keys of Marinus, mm-hmm. which kind of shows how Terry Nation 
well, I was going to say his limitations. Not really his limitations. It, it was more of a case of Terry Nation came in and wrote... He wrote. He came in and wrote the Daleks in something like six weeks or something ridiculous like that, didn't he? Yeah. And it was basically a... He, he always said, take the money and fly like a thief. <laughs> but what he was really doing was he was out of his comfort zone because prior to Doctor Who... I don't think he'd worked on any of the ITC stuff he did later. Mm. Prior to Doctor, Do- Doctor Who, he'd never really done the boys' own adventure stuff. So the Daleks was an opportunity for Terry Nation to really stretch his wings into an area he'd never, you know, into a sandbox he'd never played in before. Mm. Do you think there's a, a case for saying that he kind of stumbled onto this winning formula with the Daleks yeah. and he kind of just thought, well, if it ain't broke... Oh, that's exactly what I was about to say. Mm. I mean, he he came in, did this thing in six weeks, probably thought it was a load of rubbish, handed the script <laughs> over, thought, right, you know, I've done it, I've got the money, I'm out of there. And then, you know, then the nation loved it. Potty. Yeah. And uh, they, they ask him back, and you're right, winning formula, and Terry Nation's hit on this thing. And obviously the second story he does is not going to be a Dalek story because no. it takes a while for that to set in. So he does the Keys of Marinus. And with the Keys of Marinus, I mean, we're always saying this, aren't we? That there are certain stories where the ambition far outstretches the scope of what they're going to be able to cope with in the studio. I still have a soft spot for that story. Yeah, I think it... I think it deals with the five locations. I think it's five locations mm-hmm. pretty successfully. Yes, it within does. the limitations. Oh, he's back. Hello, I'm back. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know what happened there. Got lost. Yes, uh, Marinus. I like Marinus <laughs> too. First quest story. You get to see a whole world and all its societies. Love that. Right. I don't know what I've missed. So Simon's going to have fun editing this one. <laughs> well, we <laughs> talked about. Oh, yes. We talked about, um, well, we, we were just saying, we've, we, we were right at the very start, really. We were saying Terry Nation mm. hit upon, came in and did something that he thought was probably a load of rubbish, took the money yeah. and ran, yeah, and yeah. it turned out to be really successful. And I was about to make the, I was about to allude to the fact that his first story introduced the Daleks and an alien planet, and... You got to see a little bit of variety there. But with mm. his second story, what he did was he showed he showed the continents on Marinus, right? He showed yeah. a world. Yeah. So uh, by that point, he's kind of, you know, the first story, as far as he's concerned, is a one-off, something completely different to anything he's been doing before. By the time he's done the second story, he's got to a point where he's... Not just hit on a winning formula, which is what Mark said, but more than further than that, he is, as a writer, he has found a niche where he can be successful. Mm-hmm. So the point I was about to make was, after the Daleks and the Keys of Mariners, he writes The Chase, which is kind of the two things joined together almost. I mean, on the, in The Chase, you get to see a bunch of different planets, different mm-hmm. places, but what essentially he's done is he's taken the Dalek aspect out of the Daleks and the chase aspect out of the Keys of Marinus, married the two together and kind of set a template for what Doctor Who itself would actually do over the next few years. 
which is well you know when you look at things like the daleks master plan evil of the daleks and even to a lesser extent the dominators which takes place in two entirely separate locations which is the city where everybody's safe and warm and then on the island where you've got the nuclear radiation which obviously the dominators that you know is gone by the time the story starts but the point i'm making is they kind of there's kind of in this chase there's kind of a not quite space opera feel but terry nation's kind of created something that the people making doctor who realize that they can do that they can manage yeah has mark gone as well now <laughs> no i'm still here no 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 we were just listening because it's a really good point that you're making actually so yeah, you know, we're not disagreeing, which is unfortunate for change. <laughs> right, nobody's... But see, the thing with the evil of the Daleks is it it takes place on contemporary Earth, Victorian mm. Earth, Scarrow. It's like... I mean, they don't do it an awful lot, but it's kind of a signature style that the series takes on. When it comes to mm. an important story, it kind of takes on this, this Terry Nation thing that Terry Nation created... That I don't, I don't know if anybody else working on the program would have even thought to have done. I guess you've got some of it in Marco Polo, right? And I suppose Marco mm. Polo and Akiza Marinus coming right on top of one another. You've kind of, you've got it there, because Doctor Who. If you look at an earthly child, it's okay. Not the first episode, but after that, it's three episodes set in a cave, and the <laughs> Daleks is essentially seven yeah. episodes set in and around a city. But after Marco Polo and the Keys of Marinus, they're showing that you can do, because every week the sets had to be built and then struck. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then the following week, a new set or the same set of sets would have to be rebuilt. So by doing Marco Polo and the Keys of Marinus, what the series was effectively saying was, well, hang on, we don't need to reconstruct the same sets week after week. What if we do this with the stories and show a different place each week and we can have new sets each week as long as, you know, we don't blow the budget? Mm. I think it opens well, it up, doesn't it, rather than having just... I know in Troughton's era it does go a bit more into sort of base under siege of the, and uh, sort of corridors and stuff. It does in season five mm. and in season four, to be fair, as season four kind of descends down that slope into becoming season five or ascends that slope depending on which way you want to look at it but then look at season six where it changes again i mean we don't get to see the space pirates because it's almost entirely missing but that does Mm. the same thing the war games Mm. does the same thing dominators has a duality going on so it's not as if it's entirely uh that see season six brings doctor who back to perhaps a little bit more like what it was like during Hartnell. I think the War Games has got a lot more scale to it. Not the just the fact is... that it's... No, go on. Yeah, I was going to say the War... I was going to agree with that. It's got great scale. But there's something about the War Games that is, is so entirely brilliant and actually quite original in Doctor Who. I don't... I think it's happened a couple of times. We have these slightly sideways stories where they um, appear like they're somewhere, but they're not. And this one, the War Games, obviously, you know, you think it's on Earth, but it's not. It's on some strange planet, and they've all been time-scooped up. Um, but it is essentially an alien planet. So, you know, we, I, I don't think we ever get to see the actual alien planet underneath, do we, in the War Games? 
Well, you get to see the corridors and whatnot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'd be only be a quarry anyway, to be honest. But um, no, I kind of like that twist on the alien planet theme, where it's all filmed outside, uh, all bits of it are anyway, and um, it's, it's it just looks like Earth. It's very clever, I think that. Of but, course, you do get to see an alien planet in the war games, albeit again yeah. in the form of corridors and everything. <laughs> And that's in episode 10. But the War Games is a perfect example of what I was just saying about them mm. striking a, one bunch of sets one week and building an entirely new set of sets the next week. Mm. I mean, you've got that episode set in the barn, for example. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also, I think because the BBC do historical drama so well, I think that whole concept of having all the various sort of historic zones, if you like, on the mm. alien planet gives them a great opportunity to have something that looks really good but probably didn't cost them that much. No, well, no. I mean, it was a great alien barn, wasn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, quite. But, you know, Suki was right. If you look at Power of the Daleks and stories like that, you've got one episode where you've got 10... It's a bit like New Earth. You've got 10 minutes outside and it's like, here we are, alien planet, and mm-hmm. we're setting the scene on an alien planet... And then the next, next thing you know, everybody's indoors and that's it. You don't get back yeah. out again. And there's is, so much of that. Yeah, is there any evidence, though, that the stories need to work harder to compensate for the lack of alien planetness in these stories? I mean, I don't know if there is. Well, it depends what you mean. I, the thing about it is, during those, especially, I think, during season four, it was all about the intrigue, wasn't it? Yeah, I think if the story's good enough, you're not going to be sitting there thinking, oh, well, I haven't seen much of the planet. You kind of get swept away by the the drama, don't you? It's the politics. Exactly. You look at Power mm. of the Daleks and the Macro Terror and what you're talking about, and the savages as well. So it kind of it starts before Troughton, but it's that period. The very first few Alien Planet stories back in Season 1 and Season 2 are, here's a scary planet called Scaro, and this story's going to be about being scared. You know, here's a... The Keys of Marinus is a planet with water all over it and we're on the search for these keys so you're hopping about from one place to another and in those first few stories the name of the planet is not relevant but the name of the planet is a big clue to how simply the writers are treating it mm. by the time you get to seasons 3 and 4 you've got something else going on whereby they put you on an alien planet they give you a brief glimpse of the alien planet then they put everybody indoors, and it's all about the politics. Mm, Savages, yeah. Power of the Daleks, Macro Terror, it's all about the politics, really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you look at Power of the Daleks and the Macro Terror, take out the aliens in those stories, take out the Daleks from Power of the Daleks. Mm. And that story, in a way, could almost exist without them. I was going to say, you could almost blend the two and you wouldn't notice the difference, would you? Well, the Daleks are kind of, they're a key to how the story kicks into gear mm. and they're a destination for the story to get to. But the story's about the people, not about the Daleks. And the Macro Terror's fairly much the same sort of thing. Mm. And the Savages, they don't even have aliens. It's all about the people in that story. Yeah, I always found that such a dull story to read as a book. The Target novel never really grabbed me, I've got to say. I'd love to see it though. If they do find more episodes, I'd love to find. I'd love them to yeah. find the savages. Sometimes it's the ones that people kind yeah. of only half remember that actually might turn out to be more interesting. Mm. You guys are aware of the uh, book called Wiped by Richard Molesworth? Yeah, yeah. Mm. 
No. Yeah, uh, he's being interviewed on Radio Friscaro the other day, and uh, not Radio Friscaro. I know, who? I know. Who are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and he was saying that up until even in the nineties in Sierra Leone, they had huge masses of these old stories that are believed to be lost. Oh yeah, and yeah. I think they actually showed um, that particular story on TV, although they didn't have the rights to do it. And apparently, because care. of the a whole civil uprising. The whole TV station where it was all kept got destroyed. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Thanks for making us all cry. Yeah, sorry, we're sorry to break your heart. the podcast, Mark, and we're already in tears. Thanks very much for that. Cockroom the heartbreak. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to point out then that by the end of the 60s, you've kind of moved on into an area that looks to the time machine for its inspiration mm. in fact the daleks right at the very start has that in fact the daleks is pretty much a remake of the time machine in some respects mm, in fact yes, lee i think last time we recorded this i think it was you that pointed that out no it's simon oh was it yeah simon yeah. Yeah. but the dalek yes it's about in in the time machine you've got the eloy and the morlocks right and in yes. the daleks you've got the thals and the daleks and pretty much they're telling the same story by the time you get to the end of the 60s, you've got the Dominators and the Crotons. And, you know, it's not basis for basis the same thing again. But in their depictions of alien societies, they're kind mm. of coming at it from the same point of view as H.G. Mm. Um, Wells was when he wrote about the Eloy. Mm. You know, the peoples in the Dominators and the Crotons, you can't really believe in them mm. as an as an alien race that could exist but they've kind of become a metaphor looking back on the end of the swinging 60s and the era of free love and what they're doing is they're taking the template of the time machine and using that to reflect back onto the 1960s that's just happened and basically the dominators is almost a satire on the hippie culture really yeah, it is. And yeah, people yeah. seem to forget that, which is... Hippies on another planet. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what it is. And it the Crotons is. is not that far away either, to be honest. Do you know um, you know your Eloy and Morlock thing that you're talking about? It does, yeah. it does carry on in Dot 2 quite a lot, actually. You know, that kind of dominant race and the subservient kind of thing, that, that happens all the way through Doctor Who. And I think that's pretty much a staple science fiction you know, um, background for any story. Well, yeah, stories. it's a bit more than dominant and subservient, though, isn't it? Well, it's yeah, about one. Bit. It's about a planet where the species have diverged, so that one has gone into a purely peaceful culture, and the other one has gone into a purely aggressive culture. Yeah. Okay. If you look at the face of evil, for example, there's a very similar starting point in that story but for a different reason obviously mm. but it's pretty much the same thing again the face of evil mind you we're jumping way far ahead because the place way I far. Re- <laughs> yeah the place i really wanted to get to was the 1970s wasn't it yeah well you know we're on, we're on earth for quite a long time are we? well not so very long only one season it's quite it feels like a long time because they're all six and seven part episodes aren't they <laughs> yeah <laughs> Calm down, Mark. No, uh, Colony in Space. Is it Colony in Space the first one he gets off? Yeah, yeah. uh, Yeah. Oh, that's a really dull planet. I don't know. What did you make of that? (laughs) 
Although that's not... <laughs> you, are you talking about the fact that it's filmed in a quarry? Well, it yeah. I mean, I, again, it's that thing where you've just got the background. It's not important. The actual... The plan, you, I think you said the planet was important in this because they're mining the planet. So it's there is a kind of like... It's part of the plot. But only just. There's not... It doesn't scream at you, you know, alien planet, here I am kind of thing. But colony in space is... Well, it's brilliant. a human outpost, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it is, exactly, yeah. And, in fact, throughout um, the John Pertwee stories, all the stories set in space pretty much, with the, the exceptions being the Terry Nation ones, all the stories set in space are all about either human colonies or human beings interfering in the affairs of others or mm. um oh planet of the spiders for example is an example of how a human being cock up has caused this planet to uh you know it's the spiders isn't it that get mm. and it's like a human cock up that's caused the crisis but colony in space curse of peladon the mutants the frontier in space monster of peladon and even to an extent, Planet of the Spiders, Barry Letts has taken over as producer, and yeah. for seven years in the 1960s, you've had alien planets that are sort of on a Ladybird Books guide to alien planets basis. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're all pretty simple, and with uh, the odd exception, like the Dominators, that kind of might have a bit of something to say, but kind of fudges about how it goes about saying it. You get to Colony in Space, it's got something to say, and it says it in black and white. There's no two ways about it. There's no ambiguity about what Colony in Space is saying. It's about, you know, corporate greed on one hand and the right of people to go out there and build lives for themselves on the other. And all of those John Pertwee stories have the same political backdrop. They're all about Earth colonies or Earth people. So, um... You know, this is exactly what Russell T. Davis did as well. He said, if you're going to put um, the Doctor into outer space, you've got to put humans there. Otherwise, the people at home watching don't have anything to relate to. And, you know, look at the mm. Crotons and look at, for example, the Mutants, which is not a great example of a John Pertwee story. Mm. But you look at the Crotons as a human being, as a viewer, what do you latch on to in the Crotons? The big crystal-headed monsters. Well, no, the, nothing very it's, much at all. The story, Lee, I'm talking about the story. Oh, the story. Oh, sorry. Yeah, what do you um, latch on to? As a viewer, oh, what is your point of reference? It's the humans in peril, isn't it? It's aliens. It's aliens fighting aliens. Yes, it is. Sorry, I think the Peladon ones are quite good because they they do kind of build up this whole... You get the impression that there's a, a real history to the planet and there's a culture to it. And I like that. I think it's not... They're not the greatest stories by any means, but I think they definitely have something extra compared to the ones that have gone before. Well, quite. Colony in Space is a starting point for that. It's the starting point Mm. for two things. One is the starting point for writing Alien... Back in the 60s, right? And obviously, you know, received wisdom has it that the historicals were dull and the alien planets were the exciting stories. But actually, mm. now that we've seen them all on VHS and DVD, turns out the historicals are, the historicals, the historicals <laughs> are brilliantly written and acted, and the alien planets are really dull and simplistic. Mm-hmm. And Colony in Space is the first story to properly address that. It's the yeah. first time where you go to an alien planet and you actually see people 
with history and emotions and politics and society. Yeah, and yes, it's, it's colony, but the point is, it's a sci-fi story set in the future, set in space, with all the baggage that comes with the historical. Yeah, and mirroring the time that it was made, which was the whole point, I think, was to get yeah. his uh, ideas across through science fiction and his grumbles and his, you know, his upsets about the world and maybe, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things thrown in there, stuff like trade unions and miners' strikes and all kinds going through those stories. And uh, they're, they're, they're the best kind of science fiction sometimes, just mirroring what's going on right now. But with Russell T. Davis, we're just nipping ahead, in something like 42... Where you get this, you get these normal people doing their job, uh, doing doing a little bit on the side and making a mistake, scooping out a bit of bit of a planet that's alive or whatever. It it doesn't. I can't see what that particular story and those characters have to, you know, mirror the real world or echo the real world. Whereas these ones are quite, like you say, political heavy. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of that later on either. I don't think it starts changing again, doesn't it? Well, it changes after we get to Tom Baker and Hinchcliffe mm. and Holmes, but we'll come to that in a minute. Because there's another, something else I wanted to point out about Colony in Space, and that is, you said it was a really dull alien planet, but probably there's a reason for that, and you're mm. talking about physically to look at, really, aren't you? Mm. Yeah, I like pretty things. Well, the point is, in the 60s, Doctor Who was you know that much less sophisticated and most of its alien planets were created in the studio and even by the time you get to the dominators and crotons and tomb of the cybermen where there's a fair bit of location filming out of doors and it, even then it's all quarries for a start it's black and white and it's 405 lines you know it for all that there's a lot of location in dominators and crotons they're not really that much different from the Daleks and the Keys of Marinus. But when you get into colour and 625 lines, it's like... Um, you can see the joins. Yeah, it's like Russell T. <laughs> Davis in the new series. This is why the new series is fought shy of showing alien planets properly because you can't get away these days with pointing an HD camera with 1080 ip or whatever it's called uh <laughs> you know in 16 by 9 you can't get away with pointing a camera at a quarry and saying it's an alien planet anymore you have to demonstrate and that's very expensive it is they managed to get away with it with things like um satan's pit though the well, they, pit they show cool. very little you don't they see do. the surface no. of the planet so that's cl that's clever filming clever writing isn't it well that, that's it's not clever filming clever writing it's doing things with the resources you have available. That's what they've done throughout the entire history of Doctor Who. And Colony in Space is a turning point because, and you say it's a really dull-looking alien planet, but it's the first alien planet in colour, and it is what people expected of alien planets at the time. So it, it might be dull, but only because it, you know, it used the cliché and ran with it. You talk I about making the honest, most of the resources that you've got. Um, I think Planet of Evil is, certainly stands out, considering the pretty low budget they had. That I think is you're jumping ahead again, aren't you, Mark? Cool, cool, blimey, Mark, calm down. <laughs> it's because I like Tom Baker. <laughs> and I don't really like Pertwee. <laughs> we got Spiridon to go yet? 
Yeah. Oh, no, we don't, because... Well, I mean, Planet of the Daleks is just a throwback to 60s-style Doctor Who, and pretty much so is Death of the Daleks. Although I love that the, the, the society he sets on Planet of the Daleks of the Spiridons, the invisible people who wear the purple yeah. fur coats. <laughs> yeah, but what a sexy planet, man. That's just fantastic. Well, I do love it, but it is definitely a throwback. Death of the Daleks... I like the Exelons more. I love the Exelons, actually. But again, it's a bit of a throwback. Although it's got things like the city in, I love some of the ideas in that story, although uh, mm. they didn't... But but the point I was making was, you look at things like Frontier in Space and the Monster of Peladon, I think even more successfully than the Curse of Peladon, they all address things that were going on in the 70s because Barry Letts had this big thing about addressing things. Mm. He's the first proper showrunner in Doctor Who. Mm. You've said this before, and I think you're right. Yeah, and Russell T. Davis is uh, very Barry Letts in nature. You look at Russell T. Mm. Davis, it's not about necessarily addressing issues every week, but in Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who, there is a very definite conceit. Every week's episode has a conceit. And 42, perfect example, it's... And they've said this, this is no great secret, but every week the Radio Times needs a one-line synopsis, you know, that can tell you what that week's episode is. You know how um, those episodes of Friends are all known as the one with the something? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The one something. Well, Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who is exactly the same. 42 is the one in real time. Friends is a series without any humour, that kind of thing, yeah? (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I. But I think one thing that Russell T Davis focuses on, which I think drove you a bit mad about the series five when Moffat took over, is I think he had had that sort of overall view, and there was a flow to the stories, and it felt like one big adventure that kind of ran on. Whereas I think series five you felt was a bit disjointed, even though if I I yeah. prefer that to, to what went before. Yeah, Mr Moffat, how do you actually put the wedding of River Song? That's one line that captures everybody in the Radio Times. Huh? All of time. Sorry. The one where all of time happens at once. That, He's got you there. What? Ugh. You could say that about anything. <laughs> well, yes, you can. But do- modern Doctor Who, and they've said this, the showrunners have said this, modern Doctor Who is very deliberately written so that the episodes can be synopsized in one line mm-hmm. because this is how they're selling it to an audience these days. Russell T. Davis said, if you've got Doctor Who on for 13 weeks and it's a different story every week, every single week you need to advertise the presence of this story to the same people who may be getting slightly bored of it and you need to say to them, this is the one about such and such to give them a reason to want to come back and watch this week's episode. And Russell T. Davis very deliberately said, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing, this is, you know, this week is the one about such and such, you know, the one in real time, for example. Yeah, yeah, because he goes on about, you know, it's the one with the maggots. Everybody remembers the one with the maggots. Well, yeah. So that that's that's the kind of thing, isn't it? And Russell T. Have... Davis tried to do that throughout his entire tenure. Every episode would be a version of this is the one with the maggots yeah i mean you could apply that to almost every doctor who by saying well Well, you can apply it retrospectively but russell t davis did it quite deliberately and that's Mm. kind of the point okay yeah i mean he said that and stephen moffat has said it too you know so it's not Mm. really a it's not like I'm making some great revelation here. No. So and I don't ju- know, we've gone off on this complete tangent. No, no, I was, was going to say, 
you you got you got to the mutants right? we we were talking about all of this political stuff that um, Barry Letts throws at it and then it goes to the three doctors where we get to go to another kind of alien planet which is just a quarry um and then it, yeah it becomes a little less exciting after that doesn't it for the for the backdrop kind of thing where does uh, well, it pick no, up again after that? then you've got frontier in space and the monster of belladon oh yeah sorry my mistake season 10 yeah well i was trying to point out what different eras did I was trying to point out the way the representation of alien planets becomes more and then less sophisticated and then more sophisticated again as you go Mm. through the eras of Doctor Who and I was trying to point out the different areas in which they used the alien planets in order to look at things and you know it's a bit of a shame really that you get to John Pertwee so early because John Pertwee era is the absolute apex of using your alien planet stories to look at you know, to reflect a mirror back on the human race. It doesn't mm. always work that way. If you jump forward way far to something like uh, Frontios, mm. then you have almost uh, almost a sequel, in a way, to the mutants and to Colony in Space. It's Frontios is about the colony in space that has turned itself into the colony in the mutants uh, by, you know, by making a great big cock up of... <laughs> the settling, you know, but in a, in a way, you know, it's not really about that. But you know what I'm saying? You go from yeah, a, yeah. you go from A to B, and then where do you go after B? Because A is, you know, the really simplistic stories back in the '60s. B is the really quite sophisticated stories in the 1970s. Regardless of what you think about Monster of Peladon and the mutants and Colony in Space, this, insofar as Doctor Who's treatment of alien planets is concerned. That's as sophisticated as it gets. Yeah, it does really, doesn't it? I mean, you got yeah. Oh, well, Planet Planet of the Spiders was um, an interesting throw into a alien world. I thought that very strange, <laughs> amazingly hilarious gurning from John Pertwee when he's trying to tear himself away from the side of a mountain being attacked by stuff well that was a, the spires I, I really i really quite enjoyed that little section i really liked the fact that it was just so bombastic and over the top um i was kind of hoping for a little bit more of that well planet of the spiders is quite badly realized but again it's a pretty sophisticated idea mm. the fact that an earth colony ship has landed on this planet and spiders have escaped and through radiation they have turned into something else so that they've become the dominant species it's essentially the same story as planet of the apes yes it is and i think i was thinking more of that small clip that was in it must have been in the green death and when he when he actually yes. to metabilis 3 yeah sorry that's that's the thing i was thinking of that little... you're not thinking so, of the story so much as the visuals are you no i like visuals you know me but um no I, we didn't get to see that in the, the actual planet of the spiders which was a disappointment i thought I think it shares something with the uh, the web planet you talked before about um, the ideas perhaps going beyond what the budget can allow for. Yeah, I think it's a, definitely a, a sort of seventies equivalent. It's a pretty poor realization of a planet, really, isn't it? What in Metavilus three? It's, yeah, Planet of Spiders. It's not that great, is it? I mean, well, it's the cheaper the one. Society. Spent all the budget on. Um... Well, they've spent yeah. a lot of the budget on the Earth stuff. I mean, they've splashed a lot of budget on episode two in that story. Mm. 
And there's no outdoor filming for the alien planet in Planet of the Spiders, which is, well, obviously they did bit, that. There was in, a bit of studio floor stuff, wasn't there? No outdoor filming, Lee. That's what I mean. Oh, actually, film location filming. Yes, no filming no, I, outdoors. No, I don't think there was any, was there? It was all done in the no, studio. No, it was all done in studio, which is a throwback yeah. to the early 1960s again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what it looked like in black and white, actually, that episode. Planet of the Spiders. Probably look <laughs> a lot better. Yeah. Most people would have seen it in black and white, probably. It's true. But then, okay, moving on, you get to Tom Baker and Hinchcliffe and Holmes. Mm. And Hinchcliffe and Holmes very deliberately turn Barry Letts on its head and stop making stories that are about something, to be perfectly honest. Mm. So from that point onwards, the alien planets are just backdrops to whatever stories they're telling. Uh, I mean, mm. you look at... Well, Planet of Evil's not a great example because that's written by Louis Marx and that's obviously... A, he he's himself is a throwback. But you look at what what Robert Holmes was doing with things like The Brain of Morbius and you know things like the sun makers and the alien planets there are just backdrops to a story that could take place anywhere to be honest brain morbius has got nothing mm. to do with the planet and the sun no. makers even less so well i don't know i mean the the, mm, the planet was quite important in brain morbius f- to set the scene okay it wasn't uh, but it's not important thing. to the story well, it needs to have that reason for things crashing to the uh, crashing on on the planet, and for uh, well, no, know, it doesn't I, really. I go to go out there and this... chop people's faces off or whatever. Um, yeah. Well, no, because the story is a remake of Frankenstein, which takes place on Earth. You could have set the brain of Morbius on Earth. You'd only have had to change a few things about, but it's basically about a brain in a jar and a man building a body for the brain in the jar. It doesn't need to take place on an alien planet at all. No, no, I know, but it, the the thing is, it's, it's got quite a good idea behind, you know, collecting the bodies. You could have just gone out to graveyards and dug up freshly buried bodies, right? Like in Frankenstein uh, and other things like that. But but that's just literally copying. They had to think of a more original, different idea. So the idea of setting it on a planet with a, with a, some kind of bizarre gravity that pulls people down, and then he's going out and he's piling through the wreckages and pulling bits of it. I like that. I love that idea, that image of him going out in the middle of the night and just pulling out weird creatures that have crashed on this this planet because of the gravity pulling it down or whatever the reason is. And that's a really good idea and uh, it gives a good kind of solid grounding for something to go out and pick it up and bring it back in and go, yeah, mate, do you want to cut this bloke's head off and use that? It's, you know, as opposed to just going out and, you know killing somebody in the street and bringing them back in which is dull so I think they use the planet uh, quite well in the beginning of the episode at least it's just a nice idea I just like the idea of that Mark yeah I Tom mean, Baker planets in Tom Baker yes I mean I mentioned planet of evil earlier um, it is a beautifully shot episode um, I think they did really well with the what little budget they had on that one I think that's a definite standout um trying to think of any others and in really... planet of evil actually is one of the few examples where the planet itself is important mm. in terms it's almost of like story. an extra character isn't it well the story is about in fact 42 obviously is a pretty much a remake of planet of evil in certain mm-hmm. respects mm. because it's about well it's about obviously these are the morestrans is that right the morestrans yeah. and yes mm. but it's about them trying to exploit the planet and the planet fighting back 
So the yeah. planet is actually a central character in the story for once, which very rarely happens. Usually it's the backdrop to the drama rather than a player in it. Mm. And I mean, yes, I, it's beautifully realised. Go on, sorry. That's all right. I was just saying, as a kid, I didn't realise that. All I saw was the the invisible creature and people getting killed and the Doctor. I didn't really get the fact that the planet was alive. Um, so it wasn't perfectly realised. I think we were talking about how that season a few podcast back and how brilliant it was and that that was down the list a little bit for for a few reasons but we couldn't quite put our finger on it and maybe that was one of the things it just didn't have such a strong kind of um there wasn't anything you know when you've got a planet that is evil that is alive you need to make it even more visual than just maybe you know an id monster walking about or antimatter which is kind of like a bizarre concept for kids to get hold of and to you know to get get a grasp on as adults, though, I mean, watching it recently, thank you, Mark, for lending it to me, <laughs> um, thoroughly enjoyed it and totally got it and absolutely loved it. I loved it. i am completely forgotten how brilliant it was, in fact. Uh, and that the planet was alive and you did feel threatened, um, you know, as seeing it through adults' eyes. You could you could see the, the fact that, you know, when you walk through this, this jungle, even the very the very ground itself is, is thinking, you know. Yeah, no, it's an interesting... Uh, I don't know if I'm looking at the interview with with kids. Uh, Hello. Yeah. I don't know if I'm thinking of the Hinchcliffe era with the sort of rose-tinted glasses, but I think visually they had a a much better grasp of um, giving their sets more character and more atmosphere by dropping the lighting down. Um, whereas I think even back to the eighties again, when J and T takes over, it's very flat, very brightly lit, and it's just mm. not you know, that interesting you're... to look at. Well, that's not... a bit disingenuous because it's not true of all of John Nathan Turner's stories, and it's not true of all the Hinchcliffe stories. Look at Robots of Death. Yeah, but that was lit because it had to be lit because it was on a a big bright. Yeah, but when you're talking about the John Nathan Turner stories, you're talking I about things like Warriors things, of the Deep, right? Yeah. And Warriors of the Deep is obviously also lit like Robots of Death because it's a working environment that needed to be yeah, well lit. Exactly. So that's that. I mean, I don't know what people are moaning about. That's how it's supposed to be lit. The but fact look is, at... the the only problem <laughs> with that is that they had a Merco in it. It's as simple as that, and it was very bright, so you could see it uh, as two people in a pantomime horse, seahorse, whatever. But um, you know. I've got to be honest. If you go, if the Merkel walked in, I'd dim those lights. I don't care what the script says. Ah, uh, but you know, look at something like the Happiness Patrol or Paradise Towers, even perhaps much mm. better lit. Mm, and going through, and you look at something like Snake Dance, beautifully mm. lit. Uh, and then you go back to well, I don't know. All throughout the history of Doctor Who, there's always been good and bad in everything. I think when people generalise about things, they kind of tend to forget, you know, other things. I don't know. I, we were talking about alien planets. I kind of lost the plot now. No, no, no. I think I think Mark was just making. Yeah, I mean, he was just making a point that through this era, the Hinchcliffe era, he was taking his lead from a lot of films, wasn't he? I mean, we know that he was kind of pretty much nicking lots of ideas and sticking them into the plot lines or what have you, but. Um, you know the lighting was pretty important if you are going to go to an alien planet then he was obviously thinking about that wasn't he i mean like you say the planet of evil is is so well shot 
uh, in lots of different ways, in lots of different respects, as far as production is concerned and, and lighting. And it, it just, you, you know, there are moments in that when you forget you're watching Doctor Who in a studio because it's just so well realised. Um, and you do get that now and again. Certain things turn up. I mean, even Brain and Morbius, I, I kind of believed that it wasn't in a studio at some points. I just got into the story and felt like it was an alien planet. Lots of thunder and lightning and, and mountains and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, you know, I think the lighting is quite important to make the surrounding and the scenery that you're setting your, your story on uh, real, realistic. And it makes a big difference. So what you're saying is, in order to convince people that they're watching an alien planet, you've got to show a place where there's no daylight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in spite of the fact that if it was a place with no daylight, it almost certainly wouldn't have any life either, because life needs daylight to exist. Hey, pitch black. Have you ever seen the film? Brilliant. Oh, it's dreadful. <laughs> well, the, the the next sort of... The big thing in um, Hinchcliffe and Holmes is that they're just making stories for fun. Oh, I reckon so. Uh, to scare the kiddies, yeah. They did. They just wanted to write. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's not, they're not trying to say anything, are they? Until you get to something like the Sunmakers, and uh, you know, which is a bit more slightly it's politically. Not. It's Robert Holmes having. He's a... having to go at their tax system. Yeah, I know. But he sets it on Pluto, doesn't he? I mean, he could... <laughs> so that was his his thing, wasn't it? To do that underworld. Are you just listing again? No, no, I'm just thinking the difference that you're saying that they, you know, do, do any of these stories, like you say, do any of these stories actually mirror anything going on outside of the television studio? Well, I'm trying to look at the world building. Yeah. I think Deadly okay, Assassin does quite a good job of that because you've got the the whole sort of political side of what's going on on Gallifrey. And yeah. then you've got this really bizarre Matrix world that's going on, which is very well realised as well. Yeah, surreal. Uh, but the, I was going to bring up the point of Graham Williams. What does Graham mm. Williams do? Look, looking particularly at the Key to Time season. What's the world building like in the Key to Time season? Hmm. I mean, in the Rybos operation, yeah. When you... You've just done that thing again. And I was just, what? What thing? The Rybos operation. <laughs> Oh yeah, did I say the right? Oh, that's how I always say it. <laughs> <laughs> I've always said that since I was a kid. Old habits die uh, hard. It's reboss, isn't it? That doesn't sound yeah. right to me. It's not right. Anyway, the reboss operation. <laughs> I mean, that's a medieval society, isn't it? He's just—I uh, don't know. What, what's your point? I can't really see what the link is between these ones. Well, in the reboss operation, you've got um, oh god, what's the guy called the? Um, Byro, whatever his name is. Yes. Binro. Binro, 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 the, Binro heretic. the heretic. <laughs> so you've obviously got this kind of like a um, a history of uh, a planet. It's not like the planet just suddenly existed. You've got this sort of backstory and culture that they've kind of tried to put into it. I think JR uh, said once before when we talked about it, there's no reason for him to be in the story at all. But it no, just gives that extra bit of something else to the story to sort of make it a bit more well-realised. But okay, the point I was trying to make was during the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era, the alien planets you get, there's not really any world building going on. What you've got is a series of locations upon which a story can play out. And that story can be, say in the face of evil, what you've got is a kind of fairly intellectual science fiction idea 
that actually probably doesn't work in reality but it's well enough written and well enough realized that you can convince with it but the alien planet is just a backdrop for the idea to play out the only exception really is the robots of death where you're actually given a pretty three-dimensional society but you come to graham williams and all of a sudden and this is what links the planets in the key to time all of a sudden the writers are given say a new a new platform to work from where all of a sudden the world building on the planets is more important than the sort of high concept ideas that are playing out there the reboss operation okay it's about a sting operation in space and okay robert holmes has taken a lot of inspiration for the society he's built there on medieval russian society but the pirate planet douglas adams as well okay through the prism of douglas adams hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy kind of worldview but the pirate planet is fairly three-dimensionally built world as well doesn't work quite as well as the reboss operation but works well enough androids of tara built around a story that already exists so okay it's just a already existing story with a few science fiction fripperies but it's not literally a beat by beat retelling of it and again is david fisher's there built a society that you can believe in you're all of a sudden being given societies that you can believe in and even the power of crawl mm. and the armageddon factor which are less successful largely because of budget and production restraints but still the world building in those stories is fairly successful mm. graham e graham williams era is a lot more literary as mm. opposed to cinematic hinchcliffe and holmes went for the cinematic and as a result their world building is less sophisticated but the ideas and the storytelling carry it because the ideas are bolder perhaps more cartoon like even but bolder ideas carry the stories whereas in williams uh more sophisticated world building carries the stories wow, you even yeah. look at the less successful ones like the creature from the pit and the horns of nyman at the center of the horns of nyman is quite a sophisticated idea for a story that takes place across three societies all of which have to be more than just slightly sketched in wow the hamster in your head must be on red bull tonight i tell you that's yeah that's quite brilliant i hate you <laughs> yeah that makes perfect sense yeah it's brilliant well that's what the we did this episode to... four to look at the how the what your brilliance <laughs> no to look at how different writers and producers and different eras of the program have you know gone about well, doing their world building on alien planets yeah, I mean, I never really thought about the key to time being that solid with its um, alien planet. But you're right, it's you know, it's, it's staring me in the face now. I can just see it. And in fact, that makes me almost want to go back and watch them again with it in a different light. Instead of just trying to catch up with the stories and enjoy the Tom Baconess of it all, to actually kind of think a little bit more beyond and, uh, yeah. Well, this is, I mean, it's not like I've come up with anything new. Graham Williams' era is famously known for being more literary in its origins than the more cinematic era that preceded it but the point is with the book you can't just sketch things in in order to get the reader to i mean if you're showing it on television you can put a pretty picture in the background yeah and your mm. viewer will accept less because they've got more to work with but in the book you've got less to work with so you know concomitantly you have to give the reader more you have to 
build a pretty sophisticated world, otherwise the reader won't suspend their disbelief and will put your book down and start reading something else. And that's all Graham Williams has done. He's taken that kind of literary template and he's built worlds that are sophisticated enough that you can believe in them. Brain of Morbius, I can't believe in that world. The Sisterhood of Khan, where do they come from? How do they propagate? You know, uh, I mean... How do they a... propagate? <laughs> I don't want to well, know that. Well, where did Jesus. they come from in the first place? There's a An society armpit. of just women. That, you know, six women who live in a cave together. And, you know, where do they get their food from? All this kind of stuff. I know. It's I great, hate that. It's a great no. story, but you no, no. try and break right. it down. It makes no sense. No, I hate all that. That's the one thing that really does bug me in a lot of storytelling. Is that you will get a bunch of people and, you know, they are, they're doing something in the story, which is quite important. But you kind of think, well, hang on a minute. Like you say, how do they eat? Where do they go to the loo? Well, you know, let's have some realism here. Um, but it gets the... by on the strength of its, you know, the big ideas it throws out there. And You're the big right. characters. And at least with the power of Kroll, you can you could believe that the Marshman will jump out with a spear and, and take a fish out, and that'll be their their supper. Yeah, the yeah. least successful stories in <laughs> you know the Pirate Planet again, in terms of the believability of its world building, it's not especially believable, but it's way more believable than the Brain of Morbius. You look at the Mentiads in the Pirate Planet; it's almost like they've come in from a different story entirely. But actually. Douglas Adams ties them in quite well because these psychic people, you know, who almost believe that they're the ones drawing the planets out of the sky, it all fits in rather neatly. He's actually done quite a three-dimensional job of bringing that world to life. Hmm. Something that, you know, the previous production crew never did. I think the power of Kroll, going back to that one, whatever the slightly lacking elements of it you've got to give them a bit of credit for trying something different you know just from a, a perspective i don't know of, i think, I think yeah there hasn't been a there hasn't been a swamp planet is there in doctor who well I, point. but in many ways i think power of crawl is really successful and mm. i think it's only the production really that lets it down which is i don't necessarily just mean oh the squid and oh the green paint but i mean altogether the director of that store you need to have even in television even in fairly cheap television you need to have a director who will look at all the different elements in front of him and will put them together in such a way that they form a coherent whole so that you can believe in the society and so that you can suspend your disbelief for the story and the power of the crawl is not so much badly written as it has a director who had you know it was in one of his first jobs he also did underworld so, you know, that pretty much says it's it. It's a tough He's gig, a, though, to be fair. Well, the underworld was, but he didn't really learn anything by mm. it because by the time he gets to Power of Kroll, he's not brought all of his elements together in such a way that convinces the viewer. In spite of the fact that the ideas themselves aren't too bad. I mean, let's face it, Robert Holmes recycled a lot of them for Caves of Androzani and nobody moans about that. <laughs> you know, Power of Kroll mm. works on paper, doesn't work quite so well under a director who's not of a strong enough vision to see how he can make it work. Mm. And we've pretty much, we've been talking for an hour and we're barely halfway there. It's amazing, isn't it? Yes. It is Doctor Who, though. But look, I mean, even last time we did this episode, the one that we lost, we pretty much skipped through the 80s because... They were rubbish. (laughs) 
No, not because they were rubbish, <laughs> but because we were looking at the eras of Doctor Who and the way in which that era sh- demonstrates a sort of consistency of approach. Whereas the 1980s, there's no consistency of approach whatsoever. No, it's quite a bizarre bunch of stories and the alien planets that surround them. It's like, yeah, they they don't make much sense really there's no reason for them to be there in any of them is there apart from maybe kinder's kinder's world's quite interesting i suppose well christopher bailey does brilliant job of world building in both that and snake dance but they're so out of step with everything else that's going on around in fact in peter davison there's hardly any alien planets really at all frontios i was saying is like the you know mutated son of the mutants and uh Oh, what was the other story I said? I can't remember, but you know what I'm saying. Planet of Spiders. Mm-hmm. Uh, but was it Planet? No, the Mutants and Colony in Space. Yeah. But the Frontiers, what does it really say? It doesn't really build a world. It's got, you know, it's just got a ramshackle remnants of a human race on a planet. And although some of the relationships between the people seem fairly strong, some of the ideas, Christopher Bidmead says at some one point during that story, that they've been on this planet for something like 50 years, or is it something like that? Or is it five, ten years, something like that? But it's not like, you know, that story, you would think they just crashed, and this was happening to them now, but they've been there for years. Yeah, lost you. And this has been happening for years by the time the Doctor arrives. It doesn't make a lot of sense. The the author of that story is not... Whatever you think of Frontios, because I think... Frontios works quite well mm-hmm. in certain ways but whatever you think of Frontios Christopher Bidmead has written the story he wants to write rather than start with an idea for a story build a world and then work the story into the world so that the two things come together in Frontios the two things don't really come together and you've not got many other examples of alien worlds throughout even the entire rest of the 80s go to Sylvester McCoy Mm-hmm. Happiness Patrol and Greatest Show in the Galaxy they're not even and Paradise Towers even uh, even though that's probably set on Earth I don't know if that's ever specified but you look at the alien planets there and Dragonfire's another one actually and they're all metaphors for something else mm-hmm. it's not like um, in John Pertwee where the planet is a metaphor and it works on in its own right in yeah, I know what you mean. the Sylvester McCoy mm. years, the alien planets are metaphors, but the actual world building hasn't been created to such an extent that you can actually believe in the planet because of itself as well. It all hangs on the metaphor and you being able to get it. It does, absolutely. Greatest show in the galaxy, you know, is the most abstract of Doctor Who stories, really, because there's nothing in that story that you can actually believe as uh, realism. There's, mm. and there's a great deal of that survival, Dragonfire, Happiness Patrol all the alien planets in the Sylvester McCoy years they're all abstracts, they're all metaphors yeah, all trying to be a bit clever if you ask me well I don't mind it, I like that approach actually reminds me of the very early William Hartnell approach where you've got planets like Scaro and Marinus where the, the reason for those is because of the lack of sophistication but by time you get to Sylvester McCoy it's almost like you've come full circle where the lack of sophistication and the ultra sophistication yeah but the lack of sophistication and the ultra 
ultra sophistication both end up leading to the same result which is a planet that exists only as a metaphor and not as a society going back i mean i know i kind of dissed the 80s pretty quickly for the alien planets but actually i think simon picked up on the beautiful keeper of Traken episode that was um that i mean that itself had a nice society and it quite i believed in the um uh, the planets the unity of planets and the peacefulness that was going on okay i can't quite believe what they do in the evening do you know do they do skittles what, what do they do to to amuse themselves but um, tell stories yeah so you know i can't believe they're always that peaceful uh, maybe they're playing some darts or something but generally speaking you know you it's quite a beautiful little snapshot of a society well that, uh, has been was written by johnny byrne who was a poet johnny byrne johnny byrne he was yeah, a poet d- didn't he, he do warriors of the deep as well Yes, he did, but, you know, Oof. with Warriors of the Deep, he was writing with a different script editor, name of Eric Sayward, who wanted mm. lots of death and violence. So he was a poet, and less poetry. Uh, I once wrote about the Merka. Gosh, I was a Burka. Yeah, I can imagine him being a great poet. He also, yeah, but in between, he wrote Ark of Infinity, and whatever you think of that story, it's quite nicely written, and it does... You know, if Keeper of Traken shows off his poetic side and Warriors of the Deep shows what happens to a writer who's more that way inclined when you clip his wings, mm. Ark of Infinity is somewhere halfway in between and I think it leans ever so slightly more towards Keeper of Traken. Last time I watched Ark of Infinity, I was a lot more impressed with it than I was, you know, the time before, so. Yeah, right, okay. And I thought I was the go. only one. Pardon? <laughs> And I thought I was the only one who liked Ark of Infinity. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't think it's bad. I think it's badly realised. Yeah, it's but not perfect. But I don't perfect, think it's a bad story. Yeah, I can sit down and watch that. Quite I think that's one where the production lets it down. Although there's mm. nice stuff, but, you know, definitely the production lets it down. Um, but yes, Christopher Bidmead, in spite of his own stories, because Legopolis, Castrovalva and Frontiers are all deeply, deeply, deeply flawed in terms of world building. In spite of all that, the other writers who came in and did Alien Planets on his watch actually managed them a great deal more successfully than he did Meglos. It's an oversimplified mm. version of an alien planet. It almost reminds me of the Dominators and the Crotons, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But having said that, it works far better than the planet in Logopolis or the planet in Frontios, really. Well, I don't know. I disagree. And I just think you have to. Sometimes you have to just go with your enjoyment of watching the darn program. And as much as I know, I know you're not that keen on Logopolis, are you? But I believe that little world. I know it's just you. You actually pointed out that Logopolis means something. It doesn't mean mathematical planet. City of Logic. City, <laughs> okay, well, it's, or it's something a duff, like that. It's a duff name, isn't it? But um, I actually kind of, again, I liked the idea that these strange little fellas were walking around in in these. Uh, you know, it, it was quite a Middle Eastern looking thing, almost like Tunisian kind of town that we're in. I liked that, but you didn't really get to see any more than that. It's like the Carnival of the Monsters, isn't it? You only but, get to see a, a fraction of this little society. But yeah, I like the again, idea that it could be bigger. But Logopolis get, it suffers from brain and Morbius. Right. Where do they come from? How do they propagate? What do they they eat? What what are their lives outside of sitting there talking numbers? 
Exactly. Do they eat sweets? All but, kind of stuff. And when I say Meg- Megalos is more successful, what I mean is Christopher Bidmead's written this story, Legopolis, where regardless of whether you like the story, you cannot believe in the world. Whereas in Megalos, okay, you don't like the story, but at least he's given you a world that you can suspend your belief suspend your disbelief for slightly more than you can with Logopolis. At least the mm. society in Megalos, as presented, could could exist. It, it, you know, it it gives you the impression that a place like that could possibly exist. Could I go yeah, off on a slight well, tangent? Go on then. I think if you look at something like Midnight, that you only get the slightest glimpse of the actual planet mm. itself, but to Beautiful. me, you're absolutely sold on it's you know it's happening. It's you know you've you're got right, that, that tension within the the bus or whatever you want to call it as they're going along, mm. and um, well, you are convinced that if it all goes pear shaped, they're going to die. I think I yeah, think it I sells mean, but, it really well on very little. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I agree with you. I absolutely adore the landscape in Midnight. I think it's brilliant. And, you know, the fact that it's so poisonous and dangerous out there, they have to stay within this box, is, is quite an exciting and claustrophobic episode in itself. And you believe there's an alien planet out there. But you could have been anywhere, really. You could have been out in space. You could have been in the desert, um, you know, hovering above the desert 100 feet in the air. It's still just as dangerous as maybe being in the middle of uh, an alien planet. It's so about it, the box. It's about the box, yeah. But um, you're right. I think the realisation of Midnight is gorgeous. Absolutely fantastic. Well, that's what the new series has done quite successfully. Is in, in those terms, some the alien planets that it has portrayed, in spite of the fact that most of them have taken place almost entirely indoors with just the occasional um, you know, shot setting up the alien planet by just showing you a brief bit of CGI or whatever... But, you know, because they've set them entirely indoors and uh, to a large extent, things like Midnight, Planet of the Dead, okay, people don't like the story of that. But, you know, I think it pretty much pulls off the same thing as Midnight does, but Mm. kind of a reverse version of it. (coughs) It's like Midnight, everybody's stuck in the box and somebody's going to die. In Planet of the Dead, everybody's stuck outside the box because this bus has just landed them in the middle of this wide open desert <laughs> but you know again it's like a countdown till disaster strikes almost mm. it kind of planet of the dead is like midnight from the alternative perspective small group of people when is disaster going to hit them but uh, the point i mean we don't really need to talk about the new series too much because it kind of does the to to a certain degree it does the Sylvester McCoy thing, where the planets that you're shown... I mean, it does the Sylvester McCoy thing via the Pertwee thing, shall we say. It can, Each of the planets is there to represent something, in a way, mm-hmm. and does it either via the human colony, where all you're given is the indoors with the people, and you might as well be on Earth, mm. or else there's a kind of slight metaphor at play. Like on New Earth. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a perfect example because it's not its not really New Earth. It's just Earth. You know, it's an alien planet in name only, no, to be fair. No, 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 no. It's, it's New New Earth. It's got apple grass, JR. It's got flying cars and it looks sexy, right? So don't diss that planet. That's one of my favourite planets from the new series. <laughs> it's not Earth. Go on. 
it's that's one of your that's one of my favorite planets from from the new what, series. New Earth? It is. I don't know what it is about it. Do you know what? The actual really? episode, New Earth, was quite a weak one in my book. But, you know, you had that and you had gridlock and, um, you know, you saw two or three different parts of the society there. And I just want to see a lot more of it. I think it's quite an interesting society. It's a stupid idea that it's billions of years in the future. But I just really like that planet, that society, and the fact yeah, that there's so about, much more to do with it. What is there about that planet that means it couldn't have been set just on a future version of the Earth. Well, it could have been. But the fact is they say it's a different planet and it's it looks very sci-fi to me. It looks very SF. But um, that's my which is, point. Which is a, it's an unusual thing for Doctor Who to go down that route, I think, which is strange. What have you got a... in the new series where they go to an alien planet and they do something that you couldn't do on planet Earth? Well, let me see. Mark, I think we mentioned in the yeah. uh, in the lost <laughs> episode, if you like, the um, the little the few clips they show uh, in Rose's leaving story, mm. where they're standing on the beach and you've got these sort of manta rays floating around that sort of thing. They're quite nicely realised. Yeah. So they're again, they're little snapshots. <laughs> Have you yeah. avoided my question, then, Mark? <laughs> you did, Mark. That's brilliant, and I agree with you. <laughs> but but I mean, there are. Okay, you've got things like the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Which, in spite of not being a terribly good story, is an alien planet that's a complete fantasy. It's beautifully realised. It just it's yeah, it's a completely make fantastical realisation um, concept. Really, mm. you can't believe in it no. any more mm. than you can believe in a fairy tale, and I don't think that's not a nice thing for that reason. But, you know, in this episode, we've set ourselves the task of looking at the way they've built worlds and how realistically and how well they've done it. Is there anything in the new series where they've built a world that you can believe and whose, you know, rules of engagement are different enough from the Earth where you can actually say they've actually made a job of making an alien planet that's a different place, different rules? I can't think of one. You're right. There isn't anything, is there? It could all be set on Earth. You're such a dismal man sometimes. You really spoil the magic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm... uh, There are... What the new series occasionally does, there are stories in the new series that are set on alien planets that tell a story that um, you wouldn't set on Earth. Or if you did set it on Earth, you'd set it at in an exotic location so for example Mm. something like asylum of the daleks Mm -hmm. Mm. or something like not the doctor's wife doctor's wife's more of a sort of fairy tale version of the uh empire strikes back the middle sequence of empire strikes (laughs) back if you ask me um things like a good man goes to war the girl who waited asylum of the daleks time of angels even they're like to me, they're almost like uh, mission films. Like, mm. um, what's the one where the uh, mercenaries all go off to the jungle? Uh, Kelly's Kelly's Heroes? No. What's it called? No, no, no. But Kelly's Heroes is a good enough example. It's a mission film. Asylum mm. of the Daleks is a mission film. Uh, mm. The Girl Who Waits is different, but it, 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 in terms of its setting, it works in a fairly similar way to Asylum of the Daleks. It's in an alien planet, but the location itself is just kind of... Somewhere that is 
um, distinct from what surrounds it. So the alien planet itself is not the important point, but the story that's being told is told independently of the planet. It, the story is a self-contained story in mm. terms of not just the story, but in terms of the location in which it takes place. It's yeah, entirely it's the, separate from everything else. It's the midnight trick again, isn't it? Because you, you get a little yeah, bit of Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You get, you get the topiary outside, which I love. Again, I love that what they've done with it, you know, that world. And I do believe she's on a different planet and in a, in a different world. All it needed was that little bit of CGI. If they hadn't shown that and we just had her in a small hospital for the whole of it, I'd have felt a little bit cheated. So, and I wouldn't but be able to But it's more than just... You know, Midnight was in a box, and yeah, okay. And you've got well, things is, like yeah. Waters of Mars, which is like a base under siege story, right? But with mm. the girl who mm. waited in Asylum of the Daleks, Daleks, it's more than just base under siege. It's like, mm. you know, it's it's like a situation science fiction. Mm. You know, in the same way as you have situation comedies and situation dramas, Asylum of the Daleks is like situation science fiction. The girl who waited Blimey. is like situation science fiction. She's under, she yeah, so it's dinosaurs in a spaceship, isn't it? Or is Not it really. time to go to bed? <laughs> I'm saying the situation is more important than the location. Right. And I'm saying the story takes place in isolation from the society. Mm. I'm with you. So they're divorced from each other. It's not a... They... Well, they're divorced from everything. The mm. girl who waited is divorced from everything. It's divorced from the planet. It's divorced from any kind of a society. Asylum of the Daleks is the same. It's about putting the Doctor and Amy and Rory into a tank, into a fish tank. And that entire story takes place inside a fish tank. It, and in this case, the fish tank's actually called the Asylum of the Daleks. But you know what I mean? In The Girl Who Waited is the hospital with the handbars. That's the fish tank. Mm -hmm. And everything that's on the outside of the fish tank becomes irrelevant because only what's happening inside the fish tank counts. So it's rather like a sort of a metaphorical sort of rat in a maze and you're watching them to see how they work it out. Well, essentially, yeah. Basically, that's what it is. In Asylum of the Daleks, the Doctor and crew are working out how to destroy the Daleks and... Um, you know, get back into, get back to the TARDIS and off out of the Asylum of the Daleks. And in The Girl Who Waited, the reason I dropped a clanger there is because Lee's gone again. <laughs> I'm going to try and call him back up again. Mm -hmm. uh, but, the, you know, and um, Girl Who Waited, same thing. They're dropped inside a fish tank. There's a problem to solve. Mm. And by getting, you know, by solving the problem, it's how they get back out of the fish tank again. Lee, are you back with us? I'm back. What's that about a fish tank? <laughs> uh, don't worry about it. Possibly you'll listen back to this episode. Possibly you won't. But I think it's about time to wrap it up. All right. Because I think I've... that's the second time we've lost you. You've I know. Got to do something weird. about your broadband. Oh, is it me that's going? I thought it was you guys that were leaving me. Yeah, Damn. right. Because we carried on talking and you were gone. <laughs> fish tank. What? Okay. Listen back to the episode. Fish tank. That came from Mark. No, fish okay. tank came from me. <laughs> Rat in a maze came from Mark. <laughs> a rat in a maze in a fish tank. That's how we describe the girl who waited. Oh, <laughs> oh my right. God, I can't believe we're having this conversation and our recording devices are still turned on. Yes, they yep. are. It's definitely time to say goodnight. Um, next week, what are we doing next week? Oh, I know what we're doing next week. A sequel to our Season 10 episode. Next week, we're doing Season 20. All right. 
And the week after that, something a bit different and a bit special, because it's our last episode of our first year on the air. Mm-hmm. So we're doing something very different, and that doesn't involve you, I'm afraid, Lee. It's but don't worry, you'll it? love it. It's karaoke. What do you mean it doesn't involve me? It doesn't involve you, but don't worry, you'll love it. No, I won't. And then the week <laughs> after, then the week after, we come back with our reviews of Series 7B. All right, okay. and that's how we start our second year as a podcast. <laughs> so I was Jr. I was definitely Lee, and I was Mark. And Simon? No, no. he's still not there. <laughs> he's just listening. <laughs> what do you want? Oh, there he is! <laughs> a little cameo at the end. I was Jr. Starting. Is this the intro? And, oh. uh, okay. <laughs> That might be a good idea, actually, Simon. Good night, dear listener. We will speak again soon. I'm shaking my booty. Contact us by email via blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. Hello? Anybody there? Give up. What the f- No! <sighs> Gone. Hello? Oh. Hello? 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 Hello, hello, hello. Oh, come on. Hello? Hello, 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 hello. Hello, 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 hello. Oh.